Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast, Open a Fucking Book, in the How Did You Hear About Podco section of the application. That's podgo, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. So, take two! Let's try this again. <laughs> Hi guys, I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. This is episode two of James Baldwin. Again. Again. So, for those of you who don't live here with us and know what happened, which is everybody, um, we're maybe 15 minutes away from finishing this episode when all of a sudden my computer said, hey, we need to restart. And I thought that I clicked, no, restart later. I can restart you when I'm done. And apparently I didn't. I clicked the wrong one and my computer restarted and we lost the whole episode. So we're going to try it again. (laughs) Everything again. (laughs) Is it so bad to sit there and listen to me talk? No, but I'm tired and exhausted. Tired and exhausted? Yes, they're different. Okay. I think we've had this discussion before. Yeah, and I told you they were different. For doing a podcast for as long as we have, this is only the second time we've ever had to completely redo an episode, so I guess that's not too bad. No, it's not too bad. A few months ago we had to redo... Mark Twain. Well, no, a few months ago we had to redo the last, like, 20 minutes of an episode because my computer decided to restart before I could get the whole episode saved. Um, but, uh, but, But that, you know... This is only the second time we've had to redo an entire episode. Yeah. So. It's fine. Yeah. Well, like we talked before, you were you were rubbing it in my face that a friend of yours bought you a book. That you told me That I no. told you you could not have. But not, I didn't. Okay. So I didn't tell you you could not have it. I just said that we weren't going to be buying books right now. And You told and me no. I did tell you no. And then your friend, what's her name? Amanda. She bought you the book and sent it to you because you went and cried to everybody on Facebook about it. No, I told on you for telling me no. You cried about it on Facebook. No, I didn't cry. To your dad. Who no, I, I again, my I, dad. I, I don't understand why because he would have told you the exact same thing. Like, you don't need it. You're fucking spoiled anyway. You spoiled me. You created this monster. <laughs> it's your fault. From no. day one, you spoiled me because you got me White Castle. <laughs> Oh, oh, you know what? I have to own that. But I was... To be fair. To be fair. I was trying to impress you the first time we met with White Castle. And the second time you came to my house, you brought me Ben and Jerry's late night snack, which was my favorite ice cream. Yeah, I brought you Rolos like every time after that for like a month. And then on another date, you bought me the brand new Coheed CD. And then you used to surprise me. Every time you'd come home from work, you surprised me with something. Like a like, WWE like, DVD. 
of the Attitude Era or flowers or something. You created this monster. It was like the Dick Van Dyke show when the son comes running up. What'd you give me? What'd you give me? And he's like, uh, here's a piece of pocket. Oh, yay. And then he runs off with it. It's kind of like that. So this is all your fault. <sighs> Fine. Okay. But I spoil you, too. Yes, I have, so now I have a skull sitting here look, uh, looking at me with the top of it cut off. Uh, filigree, I guess, and some runes carved into it. And it's op- emptied out so it can be a bowl for, like, cereal and shit, but you can't use it as a bowl. You're supposed to put a bowl inside it, but I don't think we have a bowl that's going to fit inside it. Uh, but we'll figure something out. Yeah. I will eventually eat something out of this fucking skull. Probably popcorn. Probably popcorn. <laughs> It's not big enough, though. I'd have to go back like nine times to fill it up. I'll take a picture of it. I'll post it on Twitter and Instagram. Anyway, let's get to it again. Okay. Okay. James Baldwin. Here we go. You let me know when I get to a part where you haven't heard yet. You'll be like, (laughs) oh, that's new. So it may be like an hour and 15 minutes. Yes. Okay. So when we last left James, he had just sent Gotelet on the mountain to New York from Switzerland. Several months later, Alfred Knopf, as we... As we established, is the proper pronunciation. (laughs) Expressed interest and wanted to meet with him. Luckily, his old friend Marlon Brando was passing through Paris and lent him the money for a ticket home. But all good news comes with bad news. Of course, on this show, James and Lucian weren't always alone in the mountains of Switzerland. Lucian, many times, had his girlfriend Susie stop by. And in one of those stops, she had gotten pregnant. She got knocked up. Knocked up. Now, James, knowing the pain of living the life of an illegitimate child, urged Lucian, even though he was still in love with him, to marry Susie. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Even though in today's time, we would say don't get married for the sake of the kid. Yeah. But, you know, he was an illegitimate child, and that's how he saw, he thought it was the best thing for the child for them to get married, even though... Back then, it, yeah. that was the the you know the common theme. Yeah. So James got on a boat in April and sailed home to New York, learning about jazz from fellow traveler Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> His brother David was waiting for him when the ship docked. David and James would become extremely close. James serving as David's best man in June. James was able to sell the book to Canop Publishing, and even able to make a little extra money by selling excerpts of it to American Mercury and New World Writing. But back in America, he was now facing McCarthyism, the old Red Scare. Yeah. Yeah. So he used some of the money he had made from the book to go back to France. He stopped by Switzerland to see Lucien and Susie, and while there, he started work on a play that... He had suggested to Knopf, but they were not very enthusiastic about, called The Amen Corner. Now, Go Tell It on the Mountain was finally published in May of 1953, dedicated to his parents. It was an autobiographical and addressed the African-American condition. Many of the characters modeled after members of his own family. Critics' reactions were generally positive. Emerson Price from the Cleveland Press called it, quote, an almost perfectly executed story, but also the story went somewhat misunderstood. Some saw the book concerned primarily with ethics and religion, when in actuality it was based on his struggle with his stepfather. 
I like Orville Prescott from the New York Times praising the book for being, quote, almost remote as a historical novel about the Hebrew patriarch, patriarchs and prophets. But not everyone was a fan, like famed black author Langston Hughes, that called it, quote, a low-down story in a velvet bag. Yeah, that's kind of uh, an ouch there. Yeah, it's not very compliment. It's kind of a... No, I wouldn't even say a backhanded compliment. The velvet bag part, I guess, is a compliment. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a compliment hidden in a pile of shit. Yeah. They have a, they have a very um, complicated relationship that we'll cover here in a little bit. Now, after Mountain, James spoke a lot about the future, contracts, novels, and plays. But he was, for the most part, penniless. He got small loans from his brother and his friends. And when he did have money... Friends that he had borrowed money from wanted repaid or asked for loans themselves. And always caring more about keeping friends than money, he obliged. By the fall of 1953, he was in poverty and unable to write. Although he tried to continue work on the Amen Corner, his agent and editors urged him to write a follow-up to Mountain or another Harlem novel to make some quick money and to forget about the play. But he had already written a Harlem novel and he still had to finish Notes of a Native Son. He didn't want to be a protest writer, or a Negro writer, just a writer. He didn't want the labels. You put people in boxes for this shit. Like if you're a protest writer, then you only write this. If you're a Negro writer, then you're, only, you're, you're seen as a great Negro writer. But He didn't want to be a niche writer. He wanted to just be a writer. He didn't want any other label attached to him other than writer, because then you start getting yourself boxed in. It's like, oh, we can't hire him for this because he's a Negro writer. We need a regular writer. Well, that's what he wanted to be. He just wanted to be seen as a writer. Now, he fell again into a deep depression. The constant companion, Mountain, was done, and he was without the man he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. But then, as he sat in an apartment with Mary Painter, he looked out the window and saw, standing across the street, Buford Delaney. James screamed to him, ran down to the road, and they met in the middle of the boulevard, oblivious to astonished pedestrians and honking traffic, just standing in the middle of the street, hugging each other. Too, like in a romantic like, comedy. Like, exactly like a romantic comedy. Um, no, I didn't get to it in the first episode, but when they met each other, uh, Buford was kind of a, a mentor to him, tried to teach him the ways of the artist, and they had this thing where they'd stand on a street corner and they'd look down at puddles of water that, for some reason, just occur in New York. I don't know, they just show up. And you'd see, like, the oil slicks and everything blending into the water and making that, like, real neutral-toned rainbow. And it would bend what the, the skyline looked like, the cars, the people, the buildings that all reflected it. It would kind of change them, and Buford would have him look into it. You could see through the eyes of an artist that how things are different. So when James looks out the window and sees him, he's standing on the corner, staring into a puddle. It's kind of romantic. <laughs> but, I mean, he's a mentor, not a lover. Yeah. So it's not really romantic, but kind of. So the two would, over time, become more and more dependent on each other. James, the son, seeking life and love advice, and Buford, the loving father, always eager to give the support. In October of 1953, Stranger in the Village appeared in Harper's Magazine and gave James a small amount of money that he could use for a working vacation. He rented a house in the south of France with an actor friend named Jacques, and he planned to do some work on the Amen Corner and Notes of a Native Son, 
and gives some thought to a study of post-Civil War African-American literature, which he foresaw involving a trip to the American South. But the time with Jacques wasn't all shits and giggles. He was still in love with Lucien, and he suffered over the question of why he was with Jacques and not with him. And the reality of facing another depression loomed, so he started work on another new novel he called One for My Baby. Then he changed it to A Fable for Our Children, finally coming to the title of Giovanni's Room. The plot stemming from his own life in Paris and his dishonest love affairs. Now, he was still broke and had to borrow money from his mom. This was one of the few loans he was desperate to pay back as soon as possible. There were a few options. Some partisan review asked him to do a piece on Americans in Paris, which would become a question of identity. Then there was the French and English publications of Mountain, and he was hoping for a Broadway production of The Amen Corner, which he was still writing. No money going to come from that if you're still writing it. He gave Act 1 of the play to Themistocles for publication in Zero, and as fortune would have it, he was successful in his Guggenheim grant application, something that we talked about a little bit in Flannery O'Connor, something she was never able to get. She got a lot of grants. Guggenheim was never one of them. And if she would have met with him when she had the chance in the 50s, like Marriott had offered, uh, maybe he could have taught her how to write a proper Guggenheim application. Karma's a bitch when you're a racist bigot. (laughs) Plus he had the paperback rights to Mountain that have been sold, so he finally had enough money to go home. He and Lucian agreed that since Lucian's marriage was all but failed, again, they got married because of the kid, not because of love, that they would share a place in New York that fall. So James sailed to America the end of June 1954. When he arrived, he carried with him the completed manuscript for the Amen Corner and most of the essay that would become Notes of a Native Son. And one of the first things he did was head to Mother Horn's church in Harlem. Part of facing his stepfather's life and notes involved returning to the world in which he had been played out. The renewed church interest was also related, of course, to his work on the Amen Corner. He wanted to get back into the atmosphere that he had tried to recapture in the play. You remember Mother Horn's church is the church that he went to with his friend, the Moors. Yes. And then they left and went to another church. And it's where he got his first uh, dose of Christian hypocrisy. Now, in August, he was awarded a fellowship at the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire to work on his novel and to revise notes and equal in Paris. McDowell Colony, a lot like Yaddo, that Mary Flannery went to. He also completed another essay called Geed as Husband and Homosexual. This essay would later be included in the collection Nobody Knows My Name as The Male Prison. Now, while James was there, Buford was becoming ill, much like Baldwin Sr. had, and James would write him worried about his condition. He would also share his loneliness and feelings of depression as he wrestled with the problems associated with writing and Lucian. And Buford was ever was the ever-loving father, advising, sympathizing, and preaching the importance of love. We're going to see Buford start to take a downward spiral here, um, mostly mentally, more than physically. A lot like David Sr. did. Yes. Again, probably some form of dementia. But with Buford, alcohol plays a large part of it. All right, now James stayed a few months, uh, but 
return to New York in time to see Lucian arrive in December, his first trip to America. The memory of them meeting in the airport was the source for the end scene of Another Country when Eric meets his French lover Yves at the airport in New York. James was still in denial that he and Lucian could be a couple. They moved in together on, not joking here, Gay Street in Greenwich Village. Nice. Uh, It didn't take long for things to get tense. James was at his old ways of pressuring Lucian into real committed relationship, while Lucian just wanted to be friends. When Lucian started meeting with women, James obviously was hurt. Then relief came when James was given an invitation to spend time at, coincidentally, Yaddo in Sarasota Springs. Flannery had already come and gone, as well as the communist uh, allegations that hovered over the whole grouping. Right. Now, while there, he witnessed as one of his idols, Betty Davis, and her large popping eyes, presented his good friend, Marlon Brando, with the Oscar for his performance in On the Waterfront. So, kind of two parts of his lives coming together. The inspiration for James to work diligently on Giovanni's room and Notes of a Native Son. Now, Notes of a Native Son can be said to constitute a James Baldwin manifesto. Each of the major Baldwin themes is touched on. Search for identity, acceptance of one's inheritance, claiming one's birthright, the loneliness of the artist's quest, and the urgent necessity of love. The essays contained in it from 1948 to 1955 were published in Commentary, the New Leader, Partisan Review, the Reporter, Harper's Magazine. It was the making of James Baldwin in white America, also the source of misconception which plagued him through his career. Whites would constantly ask, why don't you write more essays like that one in notes? Why don't you do that thing that we like so much? Why do you have to do new stuff? I don't understand why you can't keep doing that one thing I like. Because fuck you, that's why. It's nice nice to remember where your bread was buttered, but you get to move on to other shit. I'll butter your bread. Okay, okay. It's divided into three parts. The first concerned with the identity of the Negro, with the African American as artists, including everybody's protest novel and many thousands gone. The second contained three essays on black life in America, including the Harlem Ghetto, Journey to Atlanta, and the great autobiographical essay and title work, Notes of a Native Son. And the third part is made up of four essays written to America from the expatriate in Europe, including Encounter on the Seine, A Question of Identity, Equal in Paris, and Stranger in the Village. He dedicated it to his sister, Paula. It didn't sell well at first, but ten years later, after he is a celebrity, it would be commonly assigned in college English courses. College. Did I say college? Yes. College. College. College English courses. Is your tongue three times? The I am Sasha Banks. My tongue is three times bigger than my mouth. Yes. <laughs> Still at Yaddo in the spring of 1955, he decided he wanted another go at Lucian. He returned to New York, but Lucian had moved on to make his own life there and was not interested in playing the role of lover. One day, Lucian brought home a jazz musician friend named Arnold. He and James hit it off immediately, and before long, they were lovers. (laughs) They fought quite a bit at first, but James claimed to be in love and was starting to think up ways of sending Lucian back to his wife. Go on, I don't need you anymore. Get out. Or 
Okay, yeah. Uh, I can't move on if you're still here, so fucking go home. That was my line. Well, you know what? I took it. Fucker. <laughs> I mean, that's how you know you're really in love is when you fight with your significant other. Is that what it is? How much do we fight? We bicker. We bicker, but we don't really fight. Well, I mean, bickering is fighting. No. It's arguing. It's not fighting. That that little bit of big that wasn't fighting. That was us bickering. There's no. When it comes to you telling me no to buying books, we fight. <laughs> that's that's you whining. I don't know. <laughs> yes, you do. You whine like a big fucking baby. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I'll beat your ass. <laughs> Now, Owen Dotson, writer and director of the Howard University Players in D.C., was looking for a play by a black playwright. Someone told him about the Amen Corner, and he contacted James. James liked what he had heard about Dotson and the Howard Players, and he had been unsuccessfully trying to sell the play to professional productions. He accepted Dotson's invitation to assist in the production, and in May, he went to, the wa- he went to Washington. It ran from May 11th to the 14th. The plot centered on the struggle of a Pentecostal minister, Sister Margaret, and her musician husband for the for the soul of their son, David. Of course. Yeah. David, 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 David. Yes. Now, through the story, Margaret loses her church, her husband dies, mm. and David leaves. So, you know, good times. That's dynamite. <laughs> what? Wasn't that said in good times? Jesus fucking Christ. The play was a success, <laughs> but people complained about the language. James overheard someone say, quote, This play will set back the speech department for 30 years. James loved it, making him, making him popular with those that felt that there was a such thing as Negro English. Here we go again. <laughs> Now, you would call that Ebonics. It Not, is Ebonics. It wasn't really Ebonics back then, though. It was seen more it was developing talking. into Jive. You remember the movie Airplane. Does anybody speak? I speak Jive. It was more of that, and it kind of evolved into Ebonics, which has evolved Ebonics in, in, is the title. into it's, what it's, it, it is now. Ebonics is the definition of... Uh, I forgot what uh, Jive is the... Like I guess the local colloquialism of what you want to call it, but ebonics is the correct term of. But that wasn't coined until much later. Uh, but it's still and it's correct. evolved. It, it 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 wasn't the same then as what it is. It was in the nineties, and no, it's not the same in the nineties. Continues as it is now. to evolve. Yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't have called it ebonics even, back then. Even Midwesterners have their own type of. Well, yeah. Ebonics and well, it, uh, language and you know the east dialect. North, yeah, dialects and northeasterners and yeah, southerners. Yeah, every and region has their own own dialect and even within the Midwestern. I mean, people make fun of the yeah, St. Minnesota, Louis, yeah. St. Louis, Chicago. Yeah, they're all. I mean, they're all fairly different. My my northern family up by Chicago says I sound like a southerner, mm-hmm. but I don't. No, you don't. Because <laughs> I mean, we're in the south of Illinois, and we are sound. Well, nothing. we're not. Well, we're more central than south. Well, yeah, but we sound nothing like southern people. No, we don't sound like northerners either. No, except for when you say Minnesota. <sighs> we sound like normal. <laughs> 
Midwestern people. Well, that's to say that other people in Midwestern other people aren't normal. Well, no, we don't. We don't necessarily have an accent. Well, a lot of people would probably think that we have accents that aren't from the Midwest. I remember we went down south on a family vacation, and we had a very nice waitress. It was in, I think it was a Denny's or a Bob Evans or something. And the waitress was explaining stuff to us, asking us stuff, and my brother goes, I'm sorry, I just can't really understand your accent. And she goes, honey, down here, you're the one with the accent. Yeah, I got told that a lot. Yeah. I also got so, called a Yankee a lot. Yeah, so, which, no. <laughs> but. I was like, uh, just because I lived live above the Mason-Dixon line does not make me a Yankee. I mean, I guess it kind of did at a point. But we had come to the uh, conclusion that you're not, it's not English that you love, it's language in, in general. Yes. Correctly spoken, no matter what the language is, you're a linguist. Yes. Yes. Now. Continue. Okay. Reviews in the papers were enthusiastic. James felt that he could now be a playwright and could get the Amen Corner performed professionally. However, his feelings were hurt by some that thought that, as a northerner, he couldn't possibly understand the problems of D.C., let alone the South. Poet, critic, and Howard professor Sterling Brown reassured him and suggested the importance of him visiting the South. He also encouraged James to live in Paris if that's where he felt comfortable and where he could write. That's where you feel the best, then fucking go there. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, don't live somewhere where you live uncomfortable, or where you feel uncomfortable. Well, you'll see that James he, he he feels comfortable in one place for a while, and then he misses somewhere else, and he wants to go somewhere else, and then he misses where he was before, yeah, he, and he goes back, back, back and, and forth, forth, back, back and, and forth. forth. Um, the most main reason why he keeps returning to New York is because he keeps feeling bad about leaving his family, which he still sees as his obligation. It's not, but that's how he sees it. Yeah. The oldest son. Well, after the Amen Corner production, James asked Dotson if he and Arnold could stay on for a while so he could revise Amen and work on a new story called Sonny's Blues, which is based in part on Arnold. Dotson agreed to let them both stay, temporarily, and was surprised with Arnold showing up with a guitar and two footlockers announcing, quote, I'm here to stay. The opposite of temporarily. Yeah, maybe he wasn't the smartest man. The erratic lifestyle of the two clashed with the quiet, closed-off lifestyle of Dotson. Arnold went through most of his food, and their late-night drinking and talking sessions kept Dotson from his routine, eventually culminating in an unpleasant scene where Dotson screams at the top of his lungs, quote, Get out, you... Not gonna say that word. Leave my house! I don't care whether you're gonna be the greatest writer in the world. I am finished! The two went off to the Dunbar Hotel and lived on hot dogs for several weeks. I'd get tired of hot dogs after three days. Well, I mean, hot dogs are cheap. They were cheap then, they're cheap now. So, uh, it depends on how many you eat. Well, it depends on the the, the brand. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't like cheap hot dogs. And I only eat the beef. <laughs> oh, if only. Fuck you. <laughs> they, they had no money and now no apartment in New York. Lucian was couch cruising from friends and James's family members. Giovanni's room was still unfinished and no one would buy the Amen Corner. James wrote to Mary Painter for money so he could send Lucian back to Switzerland and wrote his mother wondering if a woman she knew there would be willing to give them odd jobs for money 
and if David could send them $5. Now, James wanted to return to France. Arnold was getting restless. Days in Washington with no money. Not exciting. Plus, Arnold was making friends on his own. Many of those women to whom he seemed to prefer, James hoped the change of scenery might help. By September, Lucian was on his way to Switzerland, and James and Arnold finally returned to New York. James was able to finish a very rough draft of Giovanni's room, but Knopp Publishing thought that a book with homosexual themes would be too controversial to pop out. Uh, you can be black, and we'll put it out. Uh, you can be gay, and put it out. But you cannot be black and gay. That's just too much for the public to handle. Their heads would explode. That's fucking stupid. The delivery of notes to Beacon and the sale of title essay, and the sale of the title essay to Harper gave him a little money, and they set sail for France. They arrived in October 1955. James got himself a small apartment, and things seemed good at first. He took genuine interest in Arnold's music- jazz musician career. Plans for the Amen Corner were progressing. Dodson announced a fall production of the play in New York. They kind of got, you know, they, they worked it out. But those plans never happened. But it made James hopeful. He wanted a London version and planned a trip to pursue it and the possible publication of Giovanni's Room. So he went in November with Mary Painter, but his optimism had started to fade, and guilt over deserting his family nagged at him, edging him closer to his chronic depression. Plus, in New York, he was being seen more and more as a homosexual, and he felt the need to shield his mother from the, quote, details of my peculiarly lonely life. Poor guy. Yeah. Now, the Amen Corner failed to interest publishers and or producers, but Michael Joseph, the publisher of Mountain, liked and agreed to release Giovanni's Room regardless of public outcry. In fact, Joseph had so much confidence in James that he agreed to publish anything James wrote. That's a lot of confidence. It is. After returning to Paris, he received a letter that Dial Press had accepted to publish Giovanni in America with its editor, James Silberman, or as we've known him, Jim Silberman. Stephanie, can you remind everybody where we heard the name James Silberman? I forgot. <laughs> well, in about 12 years, he will go on to edit at Random House for a one Hunter S. Thompson. That's right. I was paying attention earlier when we went through this. I just, I completely forgot. And he will spend many a night being blasted by fire extinguishers. Yes. Ah, the good old days of editing for James Baldwin when you weren't constantly getting physically harmed. Now, while away in Paris, the civil rights movement was just getting started. School integration, the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till... Rosa Parks refusing to give up her bus seat, the bus boycott led by Dr. King. King's home being firebombed, the nonviolent movement, and sit-ins. James found it hard not to be in America during these times, but he had been commissioned to write two articles, one a review of for the nation of Negroes on the March and Goodbye to Uncle Tom, and another essay for partisan review on Faulkner and racism. In the crusade of indignation, James looks at Uncle Tom's cabin and how it, quote, has set the tone for the attitude of American whites towards Negroes for the last 100 years. 
and that the uh, African American has been regarded in stereotype rather than in hu- as a human being. Faulkner and Desegregation was written in answer to an unfortunate March 1956 interview in The Reporter, in which Faulkner made his famous remark about having to side with his fellow white Mississippians in a hypothetical war over desegregation. Quote, even if it meant going out into the streets and shooting Negroes. So we had talked about in O'Connor. Yeah, he's a fucking dick. Well, James's response was an attack on the middle-of-the-road mentality. You pick a side. Either you're with us or you're against us. That's how civil rights is. You're either for it or you're against it. Yeah. No middle of the ground. Well, on April 8th, 1956, James sent off the final version of Giovanni's room. And on May 23rd, he was awarded a grant by the National Institute of Arts and Letters. And then a support grant from Partisan Review all combined in a $4,000 payout, or as it would be today, $38,688.07. That's quite a bit of money. Not a bad payout. I would take it. I would too. Yeah. Fuck. By late summer, James, James had realized that the relationship with Arnold couldn't last. He spent his nights drinking in low-life bars looking for sex, and each morning he returned home to the novel that just wouldn't take shape. The prospect of money he had sought for now didn't seem to matter since his private life was failing. One night, after an unpleasant fight with Arnold, he took an overdose of sleeping pills. But, instantly realizing what he had done, he called Mary Painter, who rushed to him and forced him to vomit before a doctor could arrive. So, I'm going to kill myself. Fuck, no, I'm not. Yeah, he's he's got some issues. (laughs) This regrettable suicide attempt temporarily frightened Arnold enough to calm whatever disagreement the two had. James decided to take a trip to Corsica and try to finish another country. But before he left, he covered the Conference of Negro African Writers and Artists for Encounter. Essentially an expression of intellectual movement, the essay was called Princes and Powers. He found the conference a disappointment. And for those of you who don't know... Corsica is an island south of France. Yes, it's in the south of France. It's a little itty-bitty island, I believe. But it's supposed to be beautiful. Maybe we can visit it someday. Maybe. Once we can get enough Patreon subscribers and people (laughs) buying us coffee, we'll be able to go. So that's what... So from now on, (laughs) that's what our Patreon money is going to go to. If you'd like to donate, send us to Corsica. So we can visit these places that all the authors have gone to. Yes, that's how we would like to spend our golden years, is just looking at all the places that all the people that we talked about went to and be like, wow, that's neat. Yes. Yeah. Now, while in Corsica... Except he... Tangiers. Yeah. <laughs> that's... Uh... No Tangiers. No Tangiers, no. Now, while in Corsica, he received word that Giovanni's room had gotten good reviews. Unless Poe had ever gone to Tangiers, then we'll go. But Maybe. I don't think he ever did. Maybe. And that one of his fam... and <sighs> Sorry. While in Corsica, he received word that Giovanni's room had gotten good reviews and that no one in his family criticized him for his subject matter or seemed shocked by the sexual preference that he had felt in the novel that he had felt the novel reveal. So his family just didn't give a fuck. They pretty much knew anyway, so they didn't they care. They accepted him. Yeah. The New York Times book review noted that James had taken on highly sensitive subject and had managed to avoid sensationalism in the process. Someone even further calling the novel, quote, 
nearly heroic. In the book, David, a young American who, during a temporary absence of his fiancée from Paris, becomes involved with a young Italian barman named Giovanni. James is David, Lucian is, to an extent, Giovanni. David's fiancée, Hella, would be a, have been played by Mary Painter. Again, James said if he could, couldn't marry Mary Painter, then he could never marry anyone. James always said the book, quote, is not about homosexual love. It is about what happens to you if you're afraid to love anybody. With Giovanni's Room, James had produced his second successful novel and had proven his ability to treat a variety of subjects with sensitivity and intelligence. Now, like I had just said, James knew that life with Arnold just wasn't going to work. But this time in Corsica, away from the distractions of Paris, seemed to bring the two closer together. They stayed in Seaside House, owned by friend Mario Garcia. Doesn't sound very French. No. But the three enjoyed the same food, same music, and same general routine. Lunch at noon, late dinner, Billy Holiday on the record player, good brandy, a night of work, a reasonable chance to of getting the new novel done before retreating to America. Everything seemed good. Seemed. Yes. About a month after they arrived, Arnold, out of nowhere, announced that he had had enough. He wanted to go back to Paris and study music, and that there was nothing left for him in Corsica or with James. What an asshole. (laughs) The rejection caused James to once again think about suicide. But he was able to deflect the impulse by working on a long confessional journal entry carefully constructed as a draft for a short story, with the working title, The Last Days. The author describes on how, on an October evening, after learning of Arnold's plans, he took his brandy to his room, climbed out the window and down a stone wall, worked his way through a briar patch to the sea, finished the brandy, threw the glass into the water, and thought of Virginia Woolf walking into the water to her death. He walked out into the sea with his shoes in his hand until he was up at his hips. Don't know why you take your shoes off if you planned on never coming back. I think he didn't want to die. He just wanted attention. Well, nobody saw him do it. Yeah, but I don't know. Well, he stopped. He decided he could do this some other time when no one would be around to rescue him. And that maybe the sea would take him and then redeposit him somewhere new where, quote, nobody knew my name. From this, he would get the title of his next collection of essays. Five days later, he gave Arnold enough money to pursue his studies, and he was writing the Guggenheim for a grant application. Arnold was gone. Mario was usually off traveling. So for the first time, James was living alone. He thought of New York, especially his old friend, Eugene Worth. I didn't cover Eugene before, but He was a young man that James had been in love with back in New York when he was much, much younger. Talking like teenage years. Unfortunately, James never told him about this love and always regretted it because Eugene had thrown himself off the bridge, forever denying James of the opportunity to do so. So more suicide. Yeah, it's just sad. Eugene would be the primary inspiration for the central portion of Another Country, 
James also spent a good deal of time pondering on how he could help the civil rights movement in America. And of course, he thought of Lucian. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes, and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face. And I've, you know what? I've seen pictures of Lucian. I don't get it, but okay. Whatever. You, you say you don't get why I'm in love with you. I don't. Lucian, you remember Dick Tracy, the movie? Vaguely. Do you remember the, the villain Flat Top? No. Okay, so he had like a flat top, but his head was like real bulbous, kind of at the top, flat, and then it came down almost like a revert, an upside down triangle. Okay. With a receding hairline. That's what Lucian looks like. He's an odd looking man. Okay. Maybe he fell in love with his personality and his heart. Maybe. Anyway, by the end of January, he was back in Paris, staying with Buford. But Mary Painter had gone to America and Paris had changed. The race problem there had been complicated by the French colonial wars, and they reminded him continually of his need to go home. On the plus side, Giovanni's room had sold 6,000 copies in six weeks and was still selling and in another printing. Now, it looks like he was actually making money since an advance had been made up. Now, for all of you who don't know exactly what that means, when an author or even a musician a movie maker, whatever. What a publisher or somebody who's going to put your content out has any type of faith in you or the product, they will give you an advance. So you can buy the things you need, so you can live off of it for a while, so you can put all of your concentration into making this thing. Well, when it's put out and it starts selling, all of the money at first goes back to whoever's putting it out to pay them back for that advance. You don't make a dime until after that's paid off. He had sold enough books to where he had made up his advance, and now he was finally seeing money starting to roll in. That's awesome. Yes. And theater people from New York had approached him about a dramatic version of the novel, and there are movie talks about a treatment he was doing with Saul Steen of Equal in Paris. But through all of this, another country was still moving slowly. The characters were, quote, hanging around, doing nothing, just sitting there like a bunch of fucking bums. Well, he wasn't Stephen King. He didn't see them coming to life in front of him. I, I don't know. I guess not. 
<laughs> Stephen King just sits there until they tell him what to do. Yeah. And he came to terms with the fact that he needed to go home. So when Philip Rev Rave at Partisan Review suggested a long piece on the American South, James bit. Buford wasn't happy about it. He had started drinking a lot and hearing voices. But James knew the time had come, and he sailed for New York in July. His arrival coincided with the publication of Sonny's Blues in Partisan Review, a story that takes much of its energy from the close relationship between James and David. Like David, Sonny's brother, the narrator of the story, has been in the Army, is married, and struggles to maintain his own life while feeling a strong commitment to save his brother from the precariousness of his life as an artist. So, yeah, pretty much David. Everything's about David. It seems like it. <laughs> either either David the brother or David the stepfather. Yes. Yeah. Now, by September, he had the backing from both Partisan Review and Harper's Magazine for a piece on the Southern trip. Harper's essay would be called The Hard Kind of Courage and would show up in his next batch of essays as A Fly in Buttermilk. And the Partisan article would be A Letter from the South, Nobody Knows My Name, the latter part being the title of that next batch of essays. Before he left, he spent a good amount of time with Dr. Kenneth Clark, one of the great African-American intellectuals, and learned about what had really been happening in the States while he was away. He finally flew to D.C. on the 9th, to begin his trip with a visit to Sterling Brown. For him, Brown would recall blacks hanging from trees and of hearing Booker T. Washington and following the Scottsboro Boys case, which we had spoken about in our second episode of Harper Lee. So if you want to learn about that, go back and listen to our Harper Lee series. It's a sad, sad story. It is very sad. He reminded James to, quote, Remember that Southern Negroes had endured things I could not imagine. And he warned him of the tension that might exist between blacks of the South and black reporters from the North. He told him to visit the barbershops and bars, and that when arriving in Charlotte, North Carolina, James's first stop, he should do it in the daytime rather than at night. His stay there was arranged by Brown and an acquaintance at the Johnson Smith Black University, he sensed resentment from the officials at Johnson that Brown warned him about. They were in no hurry to stir up what they seemed to consider satisfactory race relations. Now, there's a misunderstanding between the blacks of the North and the blacks of the South. The blacks of the North are looking, and the white liberals of the North are looking at the blacks of the South saying, you should fight harder. I mean, you got this little bit, but there's so much more. You should fight, fight, fight. And the blacks of the South are going, listen. It took us forever just to be able to ride on the same bus with these motherfuckers. All right. Kids are starting to slowly get integrated into, into schools. We're good. Let us handle this. And all us motherfuckers up here in the white are going, no, no, no. You should fight more. Fight more. You know, we, we have all this. You should have all this, too. You should be equal. And blacks in the South thinking we've been so unequal for so long that we're finally taking a step forward. We're not looking to start a whole fucking race civil war here. So just let us do what the fuck we need to do. And there's really some resentment and some animosity between the North and the South. Yeah, I totally see that. Especially with you know, the blacks of the North and the fucking white liberals who think you know they're just there to save everybody. It's kind of how we feel a lot of times, that we have to save the world when it's really, there's so much more to it than that. Yes. Now, James turned to newspaper people like Harry Golden from the Carolina Israelite, 
and he got information on the emergence of white supremacy organizations in the face of school integration. I'm guessing KKK, but there's probably a bunch of them. Aryan Brotherhood, all that shit. He went to the home of Gus Roberts, one of the four black integ- blacks integrated into the high schools, and learned of the horrors of his experience, the taunts, threats, and ominous phone calls, sitting alone in the lunchroom. Then to Atlanta to meet with a central figure of the nonviolent movement, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a hotel room where he was taking a few days from away from Montgomery to work on a book. King talked little about himself, and James had to get what he could could by simple observation, just kind of gleam what you're getting from just the look of, of what's going on. Yeah, how, how he, learning how to read people. Yeah, how he handles himself in a crowd and all that stuff. James liked the, quote, restless, intuitive intelligence he saw in him. Then he flew to Birmingham to see Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, civil rights leader and nemesis of the racist sheriff's bull Connor, his home and church already being the targets of violence. They met at James's hotel room, him seeing extremely cautious, constantly looking out the window to see if someone was fucking with his car. He genuinely had a fear that somebody was going to booby-trap his car, that when he went out there and started it, I guess it would explode, which I cannot imagine having that type of paranoia just because you want to be equal to everybody else. No, that's very sad. Then, on suggestion from King, he headed to Montgomery to see the result of the bus bus boycott. He was met there with almost immediate hostility, but that night he walked around the city, and he felt strangely comfortable. Maybe a little too comfortable. Because without thinking about it, and without thinking about where he was, he walked into a restaurant through the front door. Which, as a black man in the South... You did not use the front door. The atmosphere of the restaurant came to a dead stop. The woman, a woman with, quote, eyes like two rusty nails, nails left over from the crucifixion, barked, What do you want, boy? Then directed him to the colored entrance. It led to a tiny cage-like room, on one side of which was a window that looked through a kind of wire screening and made him feel like he couldn't be seen by the white people. He couldn't eat the burger he ordered. He just threw it in some bushes after he left. I wouldn't eat there either. He was Well, he, he ordered the food and he got the food, but he was so sickened by what was going on that he, he just took it. It was a lot like his experience in New Jersey from when he was a teen, when he was uh, much younger. Yeah, that I, I agree. The next day, he rode on the desegregated buses and noticed mostly the silence in which people rode, almost like the silence after a lover's quarrel. And he goes into a lot, I don't cover it a whole lot, but he goes into a lot of talking about how a lot of the racism is kind of sexual-based. There's a lot of sex built into the racism. And almost like, you know, the whites were you know, the belligerent husband and the blacks were the beaten wife. And now that they could ride on the same buses, it's like they took a step forward to being equal with the husband and the husband doesn't like it, so they just don't talk. Just like when women gained the right to vote. Men did not like that. A lot of men didn't like Some men did, but a lot of men didn't. Same when black people got the right to vote. Oh, I know. And even though they had the right to vote, that didn't mean a lot of states let them vote. So, 
That Sunday, he went to hear King preach at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He took note of, quote, a feeling in this church which quite transcended anything I have ever felt in a church before. The Negro Church had acquired a new power. The joy which filled this church was the joy achieved by people who have ceased to delude themselves about the intolerable situ situation, who have found their prayers for a leader miraculously answered, and who now know that they can change their situation if they will. Afterwards, he got to meet Coretta King for the first time, Martin Luther King's wife. James was impressed by King and the success of his gospel in the face of the bombs that had damaged the church where he had preached, but he wondered if nonviolence would be enough. There was something about the Reverend James didn't like. He was uncomfortable with the idea of a pastor leading a revolution. Then he visited Nashville and Little Rock to see the children that struggled for an equal education. At one point, he flew to Tuskegee to stay at the Tuskegee Institute, made famous by Booker T. Washington. By late November, he was back in New York. His suitcase, packed full with papers, books, exploded open in Grand Central Station. Yes. That's very funny. So he's, you just imagine him just chasing all the papers around Grand Central Station, trying to get him. He gathers everything up, shoves it back in, and ties it shut with his belt. Must have been a big belt. Or a small suitcase. Yeah. One of the two. Or his suitcase was really just a bag. But I don't think it would have exploded if it was just a bag. Like a duffel type bag. I mean, it could have. Yeah. Uh, he went to a friend's house in the East Village to recuperate from the horrors he had seen on the trip. And not long after his return, James met Engin Cesar, a Turkish actor and protege of Elia Kazan. James thought Cesar would be great as Giovanni and workshop version of the story planned by the Lee Strasberg Actor Studio from the Yale Drama School. James didn't like the studio prepared script and he decided to rewrite it himself. Now, the relationship between Cesar and James was non-sexual, but sincere. They referred to each other as my brother. It's always nice. It is. To work on the production script, James went back to the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire, and, they had, and he had the first act done by early December. While there, he, was also, he also worked on Another Country, the two Southern essays, and finished a short story called Come Out the Wilderness, which was published in Mademoiselle in March, a story about the failure of a man to accept a woman's love because of her race. It was the first, but not the last, work in which James Voice assumes the female role. I don't cover, like, James's dreams like they do in the book, but he does have a few dreams that have to do with him not becoming a woman, but kind of being embraced by a woman and becoming one with her. I think in that day and age, he he was fine with his sexuality of being attracted to men, but I think maybe he was too afraid of maybe becoming trans because that was too much during that time. Probably the last episode, you'll see him become much more flamboyant and infeminate. Not to the point of being trans, either transgender or being a transvestite or, or anything Gender like, fluid. like that not even that just very very effeminate like the way he dresses the way he talks the way he walks 
he kind of just gives into all of it and says, fuck it, this is me and this is what you're getting. Okay. Yeah. Now, he returned to New York in April with the script mostly finished, and the studio production was played out in May. Received, it received relatively well by members and friends who saw it, but the experience at the studio would lead to Ella Kazan suggesting that James learn more about the mechanics of the theater by becoming his assistant on the production of McLeish's J.B. and Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth. The studio work wouldn't start until fall, so James took to finishing the essays he promised and to work on another country. And at the end of June, he returned again to Paris. Back and forth. Yeah. He had the idea of doing a commissioned article of Paris for Holiday Magazine to get a feel for the city as it was now. It was called, ironically, Paris 1958. <laughs> uh, getting crappy with those titles now. <laughs> But it didn't fit with Holiday Magazine, and the work he did on it led to an article for the New York Times book review called The Discovery of What It Means to Be an American, which isn't much more creative, honestly. I mean, it's... It's on the nose. Yeah, but... It's not Paris 1958. Yeah. That's like that's like uh, the, the, the newsreel before the movie. Paris 1958. Yeah. That would become the opening essay of Nobody Knows My Name. The original essay was submitted and refused by the reporter. One of the few times we see a essay of his be refused by anybody. You, you gotta learn somehow. You learn from your failures. Yes. In August, he heard that Come Out the Wilderness won an O. Henry Award and was going to be included in the O. Henry Best Short Stories of 1958, and Sonny's Blues was included in Martha Foley's Best of 1957, and Esquire wrote asking for another jazz story. Jazz story. I said jazz story. Jazz. Which is different. He had the idea of writing about a black jazz singer returning home to America after being in Paris for several years. It would later be called This Morning, This Evening, So Soon. He wasn't able to finish the novel over the summer, but he did get the final draft of the screenplay for Equal in Paris, which he called Dark Runner. Again, it sounds like an Arnold Schwarzenegger's 1980s movie. I guess so. Maybe Arnold more of a Wesley Snipes, Kevin Bacon type thing. Wesley Snipes is the Dark Runner. Yeah. No? Okay. <laughs> Which included the bedsheet incident from years before. He goes to prison for, you know, not stealing a bedsheet. She didn't steal it. Somebody gave it to him. It was hot. He received stolen merchandise. Yes. It wasn't the best adaptation, and he realized it, so he never put that much effort into getting it made. One of those things like, look what I did! Eh. And possession is nine-tenths of the law. I suppose. Isn't possession 100% of the law? I've always heard nine-tenths. Yeah, I know, but what, what, what out there are you breaking the law where you're not affecting somebody else's possession? You kill somebody, you're taking their life. That's their possession. You kidnap somebody, you're taking away somebody's kid. That's Technically, I have no idea. I mean, I. Th- 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 uh, I come for you to, for answers. I come to you to tell I'm me. I'm not these fucking things. Google. <laughs> Wait to see if our Google Home came on. I didn't say okay or hey. That's true. He knew it was time to head back home when he heard about Dr. King being stabbed by a black woman while he was autographing books in Harlem. 
Yeah, I'd never. I don't think I ever heard that. Yeah, he was uh, his. I I, th- I believe it was his book. He was autographing in Harlem, doing a little. Yeah, it was, I don't know if I'd say book tour, but something like that. And a black woman came up and shanked him, shipped him with a shank, shanked him with a ship. Okay. Now, back in the states, by the end of October 1958, he jumped right into work on the studio at the studio with Eli Kazan and began planning another production of Giovanni. There was a reading in November, an option for a Broadway production was taken, and James tried to get Montgomery Clift to play David. He really wanted Brando, but he was not available. Also, he tried to get his old friends, Rip Torn, and, I don't believe in the afterlife, but may he still rest in peace, Christopher Plummer. He just recently died, and I'm sad. Unless you're listening to this five years from now, and then he died five years ago. And I got it this time. <laughs> yeah, she, Fuck you. Because you didn't get it last time. It took a second, okay? <laughs> it took a second of, no, he just, what? But the production didn't happen, so it doesn't matter anyway. In March, she attended a preview performance of A Raisin in the Sun, written by an acquaintance, Lorraine Hansberry, and he met and became good friends with the star of her show, Sidney Poitier. Another great actor. Again, none of these names are as big as Bill Murray. I don't care. BFM. There's one name that's going to come up that's going to be, that you could put up there with him. Then it's going to come up here in a minute, but Bill's still on top. By the time his work with Kazan on Sweet Bird was over, Kazan was suggesting to him to write a play of his own based on his evident concern with the private lives of blacks and whites in the context of the civil rights struggle. Conversations with Rip Torn, Sidney Poitier, Tennessee Williams, and Lorraine Hansberry fed fuel to the idea, and from it would come Blues for Mr. Charlie. Now, in early 1959, the discovery of what it means to be an American, and nobody knows my name, appeared and helped establish James as a leading voice in the condition of race in America. And finally, the fame and money started showing up, the hard work paying off. He was told that he was to receive a two-year Ford Foundation grant of $12,000, or $108,220.03 today. Homie's rolling in the dough. Anybody would like to pay us for the next two years that much money to just do the podcast, we will take it, and we will say thank you. I'd like another. And they gave him this grant so he could continue to work on another country. He was asked to do countless speaking events, commenting on on literature. His opinions now had some serious weight behind them. Some of this literature was from up-and-comers, but some was from highly established authors like Langston Hughes. I think we're finally getting to the part where you haven't heard yet. Yes, this this is is where it cut out. Okay. I told you earlier that we would get into a complicated relationship between James and Langston Hughes. James was a huge admirer of Hughes, and Hughes had praised the Harlem Ghetto and even wrote to James to show love and support for everybody's protest novel. And after Mountain was released, he sent James some reviews and told him how he admired the treatment of Richard's suicide in the book, even though he didn't have great things to say about the book as a whole. So he didn't love the entire part, the entire book, but there were parts in it that he saw some greatness in, that he, he really enjoyed. So... And just telling you how he feels. Well, yeah, I mean, I I appreciate great feedback and constructive 
criticism. Especially when it's from somebody who's established like Langston Hughes was at that time. Yes. If you heard from him now, it probably wouldn't be near as awesome because he's dead. <sighs> but then things went sour. Hughes had negative comments about notes of a native son and it hurt James enough that when Hughes published selected poems, he used it as an opportunity for somewhat of a revenge. James wrote in the New York Times book review in March that whenever he read Hughes, quote, I am amazed all over again by his genuine gifts and depressed that he has done so little with them. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> and like, that Hughes kick in the balls. And that Hughes is not the first American Negro to find the war between his social and artistic responsibilities all but irreconcilable. Damn. Yeah, he's getting catty with it. Of course, Hughes was hurt and responded with a note. Now there is that horrible A word that he that he likes to that he will use. So just you'll just have to deal with that. Okay. 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 Quote Hey Jimmy, ain't you heard? Race and art are far apart. Luckily, they maintained no ill will towards one another, but Hughes would continue to be both supporter and sometimes harsh critic of James, like with his reaction to Nobody Knows My Name in May of 1961, where Hughes writes to James calling him a, quote, sage, a culled sage, whose hair, once processed, seems to be reverting. Jimmy, I fear you are becoming a Negro writer, and a propaganda one at that. What's happening? Or am I reading that wrong? Hope it makes the bestsellers list. You might as well suffer in comfort. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Now, back to the winter and spring of 1959, he was still working on another country and developing an entourage, as he usually did. But even though he loved being around and with people, his money and emotional situation couldn't handle the influx of, quote, friends which is you know yeah they weren't really his friends they wanted his money especially when racism showed its ugly face in the village a way it really hadn't happened before for him i remember the village is kind of one of those places where he never really had to deal with that type of stuff uh, people were more open-minded there yes well one night him engen engen's girlfriend and another white person were at a bar called the village paddock for late-night drinks. There, there were several white men sitting at the bar. James's group was having a mildly noisy good time, laughing, singing, talking. At one point, Engen's white, Engen's white girlfriend put her head on James's shoulder while laughing at something he had said. Within seconds, the group from the bar was up and attacking. Chairs broken over heads, Edgen badly beaten, James had a large cut across his nose. The police arrived and, of course, did little to the group of attackers and sent Engen to the hospital where he had to stay for several days. James felt horrible. He had gone through a trip to the south with zero physical harm, but here, where he had felt safe, one of his friends was almost beaten to death while in his care in his town. He left a friend in charge of his apartment, and he retreated to the Cherry Grove Hotel, then to Friend's house to get his mind right. That's fucked up. 
Now, a pattern of time-consuming, money-consuming, emotionally drain, emotional drainage, social life, followed by an escape into isolation, was something that James did well. He knew he needed to change it. He talked to David about starting a savings account and renting an apartment for his mother and siblings, also of getting legal and financial assistance. He had too many things on his plate to handle all on his own, and he knew that life was getting ready to change drastically, and he needed to be ready. Novels, essays, public appearances at Bard College, Notre Dame, San Francisco State, Kalamazoo, and bunches of radio station interviews over the next few months. In June, he gave a speech called Mass Culture and the Creative Arts at Tamament Institute in Pennsylvania, maybe his most important speech at that time, about condemning the nation for drifting away from the truth and towards false myths. This is a problem we have now. now. By the summer, James went back to Paris <laughs> to see Buford and to work. It wasn't that he really wanted to go back, but he couldn't get the city out of his head. While there, he wrote an essay called On Catfish Row, a review of Otto Pregmier's Porgy and Bess, an extension of the Tamament speech rewritten around the death of Billy Holiday, comparing the Hollywood lies to reality. In Paris, like New York, it seemed that people always found where he was. The more famous he got, the more people sought him out. He would go from place to place, hiding out, to be mostly alone, but leeches always find blood. Yes, they do. Like, quote, like a, quote, juvenile delinquent that James had fallen for in New York that made a living as a hustler. James decided to take him to Paris with him, and once there, the boy proved to be anything but faithful and was off like a shot. When he needed money, he'd show back up. When he didn't, he'd be gone again. To James, it was depressing and demoralizing. Well, yeah. But while there, he had to get work done. He was given two important projects for Esquire. An interview with Igmar Bergman, and an interview with one of James's idols, maybe the only person I'll put up there with Bill Murray, Charlie Chaplin. Nice. So in October, James went to Stockholm to meet with Bergman. They liked each other immediately, both having preacher stepfathers and being artists themselves. James enjoyed Bergman's films like The Seventh Seal, The Magician, Summer Interlude, and Wild Strawberries. Their meeting was described in detail in The Precarious Vogue of Igmar Bergman, which also shows up in Nobody Knows My Name as The Northern Protestant. James hoped, after the interview, to someday have his own movie preferably based on the slave novel he had been wanting to write for some time. He planned to call it Talking at the Gates, and it would be full of symbol and metaphor, a study in white and black, white ships, black slaves, white masters, black sea. The ship would be called Jesus. Nice. He knew it probably wouldn't happen, at least not easily. The The Chaplin interview was not as easygoing. As in, he couldn't find the man. (laughs) Two separate trips to Switzerland led to nothing. It even upended his plans of going home by Christmas. He sent the Bergman story to Esquire, and they loved it so much that now not only did they want the Chaplin piece, but also an essay on Harlem. So he began working on Fifth Avenue Uptown, a letter from Harlem, quickly finishing the first draft, calling it 
all up and down that street. This would also be included in Nobody Knows My Name. Revisiting the Harlem ghetto, but this time without the objective voice. This time as a black man that sees Harlem as, quote, occupied territory. This essay would turn James back to the civil rights struggle. Almost as trying to convince himself to leave Paris, he returned to work on This Morning, This Evening, So Soon, a story about the African-American artist's responsibility to redeem his nation. So, on the 27th of January, 1960, he boarded the Cristoforo Colombo and sailed back to America, because on top of everything else, he had made an arrangement with Harper's Magazine for an article on Dr. King called The Dangerous Road Before Martin Luther King, meaning another trip to the South. And that is where we will pick up for part three of James Baldwin. Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> Think his second trip to the South is going to be worse or better than his first trip? Probably worse. Probably worse? Yes. You'll find out next week. Well, I know that. Here on Dark Runner. <laughs> Does Dark Runner have a partner? Uh, short round. <laughs> no. Yes, it's it's a it's a it's it's a spinoff from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but it's not about Short Round. It's about Dark Runner. Short Round just appears. In it. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know if he has a part. The bed sheet is his is his partner. <laughs> Dark Runner and the bed sheet. Dark Runner and the bed sheet. That's what he used like a whip until okay. he until ha- he accidentally hangs himself with it and breaks a water pipe. You're such a dork. Hey, we got through it and it didn't restart on us, so I take it as a win. Okay, well, let's finish so it doesn't happen again. Okay, well, then give everybody our socials. So okay, on Twitter and Instagram, we are at open and open <laughs> a F-I-N-G book. Shut up. I'm trying to do the thing. <clears throat> on Twitter and Instagram, we are op- at... <laughs> Stop it! We're... On Twitter and Instagram, we are at open a F-I-N-G book. I am at E-C-J-B-A-T on Twitter he is at young etam6 and on instagram he is young etam and that's it very good fucker <laughs> i'm leaving all of it in too fucker <laughs> fuck, fuck you email us openafingbook at gmail.com if there's any books or authors you want us to cover um stephanie goodreads goodreads.com slash open a f i n g book and goodreads.com slash ECJBAT. I upgrade. I upgraded. I updated our Goodreads uh, the other night. So a lot of the books that we've covered on weekday, Cliff Notes are on there, and this book by David Leeming is on there. If you want to check those out, go to our Patreon, patreoncom book. Um, all your donations go to send me and Stephanie to Corsica, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess to make the show better, if that's important to you. If a monthly commitment's too much to ask from you, if you can't really uh, commit to that, you can go buy us a coffee. We both like coffee. We do. Buymeacoffee.com slash open an effing book. Um, come back middle of the week, Wednesday night, Thursday, sometime, whenever we get around to you know recording it and putting it up. Uh, where we cover four books of the week. Uh, Stephanie will have a gaggle of books that she's interested in that I'll have to do a bunch of work in putting into the show. But hey, you know what? We get to meet, we get to talk to a bunch of cool authors on Twitter, and a lot of them that you had brought up this past week's episode have 
tweeted us back and it's been it's been really neat getting to talk to a lot of different authors so you know that's fine i introduced you to this world you didn't uh, introduce me to this world i had read a book before i met you i meant talking to authors online oh yeah pretty much um rate and review us wherever you listen follow subscribe whatever the podcast app that you use lets you do uh go to your local library your local bookstore uh buy buy a book from a local independent author from a local independent bookstore it's the best thing you do to help them out right now i'm working right now on getting some merch up uh it will be patreon subscribers will be the first ones to be able to order them and after that everybody else will be able to order what they want uh but then i'm still working on it so we're not quite there yet but i i i the what i have now i i like i showed you i like it too <laughs> don't give me that fucking look, look what look you know that looked like i just told you no you couldn't buy a book minus the tears in your eyes I will fuck you up. <laughs> okay, well, that's it. I'm done. Okay. That's it. It says end, so that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Okay. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. In between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Don't be a dick. And? Go for a fucking book. See ya. Bye, guys. <laughs>